Welcome to Bruin Success, where we talk to the UCLA alumni and explore the many paths to success beyond UCLA. I'm your host, Katie Russo, and today I'm excited to be joined by John Arboleta, Head of Primary and Secondary K-12 Education across Europe, Middle East, and Africa for Adobe. Prior to Adobe, his experience spans an over 20-plus year career in international education, including serving as Director of Special Projects and Innovation at the IED Design School in Barcelona. In addition, he serves on the UCLA Alumni Association Board of Directors. John graduated from UCLA in 1996 with a degree in Latin American Studies. John, welcome to Bruin Success. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy week to join us today, all the way from Barcelona, Spain. Thank you, Katie. Very happy to be here. Very happy to be part of this webcast. And greetings to all the listeners around the globe from Barcelona. Awesome. So to start things off, your role at Adobe sounds unique. Can you explain a little more what your role as head of primary and secondary K-12 education overseas and is responsible for? Sure. My job is to help build the awareness of what Adobe offers to support digital and creative literacy across the K-12 schools. The importance of digital literacy and creativity, critical thinking, collaboration, communication, and creativity are really key skills for students to develop in a digital way. And so as schools are developing their digital strategies, there's a lot of digital acceleration happening now all around the globe in the context that we're living in today. Our, my job is to help work with policymakers, school leaders, decision makers, at different at the reach local regional and country level to help them understand what adobe how adobe can be a great educational partner around that the other thing i also have to do is demystify and i'll take advantage of this katie adobe is not just the pdf company and it's not just the creative cloud company for creative professionals we embrace that about us but adobe actually can serve all across all the education general education spectrum we serve across all industries and pdf and our creative professionals are just one area of our larger business. So part of my job is also to demystify that and help see how we can align and complement what we offer to the larger teaching and learning outcomes that um, school leaders wish to achieve with their students. Yeah, and that's what we do. Okay, wow, that's, that's fascinating. And has this position been with Adobe for a long time in terms of like kind of the organizational structure and goals of Adobe and its mission? I'm just curious, it sounds because it sounds seems unique. I'm curious if it's kind of always been a part of the structure. And just to give some context, Adobe's always been committed to education for a long period, because for a large part, we've worked a lot with the design schools and where I spent some time at and, and related institutions. But over the years, what we've been seeing is that this, the reality for digital creativity and literacy is expanding across all the spectrum. And as Adobe, saying, Adobe says, let's get out of our, let's not just take care of our core area, but let's go to the general education core, history, math, science, business schools, higher education institutions, all the K through 12 sector. And there's really been a, a real big interest and demand in what we're offering, especially because they're seeing that it's relevant and it can complement teaching and learning and being able to do that. So we've seen that across all of our markets from the North American market, Asia Pacific, Latin America, and now in Europe and across the area that I cover is EMEA, um, Europe, Middle East, and Africa, we're seeing that a lot more. So my specific role is work was being done, but now I'm the only dedicated person that does this 
um, within Adobe and EMEA, but I have to say it's a collaborative effort. We work a lot with other colleagues on the sales team, the marketing team, our reseller network that we do. There's a whole team of people behind education, behind Adobe's really strong commitment to education. I'm just one piece of that example. And I think we're just gonna be expanding more and more to be able to do that and how we can better serve the education sector globally. Okay, got it. That makes sense. So after earning your degree in Latin American studies at UCLA, how did you find your way into a career in international education? Or maybe what significant experiences did you have either at UCLA or kind of starting out in your career that led you to kind of pursue this work? My whole career has been dedicated to the field of education. Um, and it all started with, I have to say, UCLA is where it really started. As background, I think of relevance is I'm a first-gen college student. I was, I'm, a, I'm a proud transfer student. I was a commuter student while at UCLA. Yeah, Latino student. Now I'm an, I'm an alumni living abroad. So when I went, when I transferred to UCLA, I didn't think I was going to get to UCLA. And when I got admitted, of course, I was going to go. But I didn't know how to navigate UCLA. You know, it was very new for me. I didn't have the experience or the background or the guidance in the beginning, how to navigate that experience. So some parts of UCLA were very challenging to me in the beginning because I, how do you know what you don't know? And I couldn't answer. I didn't even know what the questions were to ask. And so in the course of being at UCLA, I was fortunate to meet many wonderful people who were staff, faculty, other alumni, and fellow students who became really pillars for me or kind of lighthouses for me across campus to help me understand that from AAP office, which was big for me, or, or key folks who became my, my mentors, like too many, you know, many to name who became my mentors and were helping me navigate that. So when I graduate, long story short, so when I graduated from UCLA three, you know, almost three years later, I go, what I had, I had no clue what I was going to do. I didn't have a, I didn't do, uh, I didn't, I never hit the career office. I just wasn't doing that. I didn't do an internship. I didn't know how to prepare myself for what was next. So what I did know is I didn't want people to go through the experience I had, not just in during the, my community college as a first gen student in my journey from high school to UCLA via community college. So I wanted to help people fast track or learn from my experiences. How can I help them? better navigate their first-gen experience. And so immediately upon graduating from UCLA, I didn't know what to do. And one of my first jobs came through my UCLA network and someone told me there's a job opening because I was volunteering already on campus with transfer students and all that. And they're saying there's a job opening in Fresno. I go, Fresno, you know, north of us, Fresno, California. And it was an opportunity to work with the University of California Office of the President. This is pre-UC Merced. It was actually laying the groundwork for UC Merced. And I joined the team up there for two years doing student outreach and admissions across the entire San Joaquin Valley with the, with, with the, with the excellent team and former director that we had and building outreach across the, the UC campuses, serving, you know, migrant farm workers to, you know, the whole from that spectrum to the landowners and everyone in between and serving their students to gain access to the UC system. And that's where I discovered the reality of a career in education. And it just spun off from there to be able to do that. But I was driven by my own experiences. So after the UC system, I, I loved education. You know, you can actually earn a living doing it and you're actually doing some really impactful work 
um, that requires on so many skills that you need and ones you don't know and you develop. After the UC system, Fresno was great for two years, but I knew I wasn't gonna stay there. Um, I found out through another UCLA uh, mentor that I had on campus about something called the Coral Fellows Program. It's this, it's this national leadership fellowship program that's a nine month program. And I go, I'm not gonna apply for that. That's, that's not for me. That's how I felt about UCLA, right? It's super competitive. They like 60 people from across the country are selected. To I'm like, I'm not going to do that. And Machek, who was one of like my mentors, goes, you're going to apply, you're going to go for it. I go, no. I applied at the last minute, you know, and I got admitted. And I go, I'm going to do this program. And so I did the fellowship program, which is like a full-time experiential-based fellowship program. After I did that, I got exposed to how government, how society functions, you know, we, we had a deep dive into how society functions and all the different sectors that are there, labor, business, uh, labor unions, political campaigns, government, media, and you got these like field assignments. It's really was, it was like project-based learning early on, you know, now it's, it's a big thing now, but we were doing it early on with a diverse group of classmates who would challenge and each, we challenge each other and learn. I did that. And then afterwards, I, I dedicated some time for community. I went back to the community colleges to work at Cerritos College, where I came from, and Mount San Antonio College. And I helped start some summer bridge programs there. There was some, some government money, and the leadership there hired me to help launch these programs, always in collaboration with amazing people. I mean, I'm talking about my experience, but it's, it's, an art, it's, it's a family of people who make these things happen. And then before, then I was supposed to go to graduate school because that was the right thing to do. I was on track, right? I'm on, on track, you know, UCOP and UCOP and Coro and this. And I was like, what am I gonna do? Public policy is the right thing to do. But I do have to recall that I did study abroad at UCLA and I spent a semester in South America. I mean, I was a Latin American studies major. So I have my own experience, not just what the professors were telling me. And I, and I said, before I go to graduate school, which I'd been admitted, I went on a journey for six months and I saved up my money and I, I backed and I did a self-finance six month journey across. I went back to South America for two and a half months on my own. I went to Europe for the first time and I only went to Spain, France, and Italy for two and a half months. And then I drove across the United States. So now that I was coming back with tons of transformative life experiences I was supposed to go to graduate school at UCLA and, and continue in doing what was the right thing. But during that journey that I had, I was 28 at the time, I had an epiphany that what I learned to do, what I learned to listen to what feels right. And what feels right sometimes is, is a good thing to do. So you have to balance, I balance out what feels right with the right thing is to do. And I told my family, I'm not going to go to graduate school. And all my supporters were like, what? What are you going to do? I go, I'm going to go live in Europe. Like, how are you going to do that? I go, I don't know, but I'm going to go live in Europe. You know, I'm a son of immigrants anyways. My parents are from Colombia. My maternal grandfather was Italian going to Colombia. So I go, it's in the blood. And I'm, I got an exit strategy. I can always go back to the U.S., right, if things don't work out. Being an immigrant by choice is a luxury in life. And so I, I made the choice that I was going to go live abroad. Long story short, I eventually made it to Europe, right? About two years after. There's a big detour in life, right? Which, you know, for those of you listening, detours are not scary. Embrace detours sometimes. Sometimes you have to, there's the detours are there for a reason. And sometimes we have, we should embrace those. And I took the detour and I, I thought I was always going to live in Spain or Italy. Where did I live the first six years? Germany, you know, and for 
for reasons unbeknownst to me, I went to Germany and that's a story for another day, but I ended up in Germany and I went there with no work permit, no residency permit. I didn't barely spoke German. I had good motivations to be there, a former relationship. Okay. Just there. I'll, I'll hint that. And uh, that didn't work out, but I stayed. And then believe it or not, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was like early thirties at this time. And what did I do? I ended up working education again. I got hired by jointly by Duke University, but I was employed by Frankfurt University in Germany to launch a business school for the Germans and an executive MBA program for high profile, you know, you know, up and coming career, career performers who wanted their executive MBA while working for big companies or organizations across Europe. So I learned, I got in the world of management or business school education and I stayed there launching a business school, entrepreneurial within a public German university with a, with a big U.S. partner and navigating that. And uh, I did that for a number of years, uh, having a variety of roles, really enjoyed it, got to travel all over Europe and represent. It was just, it was a great entrepreneurial experience. And then after that, I met my wife, who's Italian in Frankfurt. I was about to come back to the United States. I met her, another detour called love, you know, this time I got it right. And she goes, I don't want to live in the States. I go, where do you want to live? She goes, Italy or Spain. And we wanted to leave. We were both, she'd been in Germany a number of years. We were ready to leave. And I speak Spanish and my wife had learned Spanish many years earlier. I go, well, let's target Spain. And we, I got a job at Asada Business School, which is a top 20 business school worldwide. Got a job there. And my, and then my wife and I got married. Our son was born in Germany. He came as an infant to Spain and I was at the business school and I became the director of global engagement for alumni. So I do know the alumni world a bit. And I was, I was engaging alumni across the world and engaging international students coming to get their, you know, manage their MBAs at, at Asave. And I did that. And that was new for me. And then our daughter was born. And then I became an entrepreneur for a while. I started a, a consulting business called Noyo, which stands for not on your own, which is a big philosophy of, of life of mine that no one should feel they're on their own with whatever they're doing in life. And I did that for about five years, got done with that, you know, um, eventually just realized I needed something else. I became an entrepreneur finally, you know, business owner. And, and then uh, the opportunity presented to go work at a design school. Okay. Education again, but design and design is so important. Now design thinking, product design, the whole concept of a design approach and how we tackle societal problems and to be, to work for a leading design school in Europe was amazing. And I don't come from this background. And then long, then what happened after that? One of my former clients was Adobe when I had my consultancy and my former client called me up and says, come join the team. I was like, what do you need? I've never worked for corporate. I'm old. I'm in my, I was like 47. I, you don't do corporate at this age. What is that? You know, I'm like, are you sure? I go, my background is this. She goes, no, you're going to be great for the role. I was like, no, what are you talking about? She's like, no, you're great. I'm like corporate, but I've always thought about corporate, but I gave up corporate opportunities a long time ago because I thought I was too old. I was not seen in that. But sometimes it's not about how you're seen, but it's how you're viewed and finding the right fit. And I joined Adobe almost 18 months ago. And, and it's been a great experience. Lots of learning, lots of stretching, lots of understanding and navigating things. 
But again, it's an education again. I'm in K-12 education. And the last six years, I've been on the board of the Alumni Association, which has been great. And that's education. So one way or another, although I haven't been linear in my career approach, my wife tells me, John, you have a narrative there. There is a real narrative there. Sometimes I'm like, I wasn't planning on doing half the things I've done. But I think um, a UCLA friend and former mentor of mine goes, you have to align purpose with passion. And if you do that, you, you'll find a way to get paid and you'll find a place to be. So sorry for that longer story, but I think it's, 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 it's relevant to being this kind of first gen student, being scared as heck to be at UCLA, not knowing how I was going to navigate that to what I'm doing now and ending my final term on the board. Right. Yeah. And so, so many, I think, can relate to the first gen experience, like you shared and some of those feelings that come up. But I love, I mean, I love so much of your story and, and hearing all the amazing different roles you had. And just like you said, how it has kind of, you know, it, ha- it has its own narrative that it has developed over time. But I love your, I loved your comment too, about the detours and not, not being fearful of those and leaning into the detours when sometimes they present themselves and they're not always a bad thing, like you said, and just, you know, like that's life. That's a part of learning and growing and figuring things out. So I, I, I appreciated that comment too. You know, Katie, just recently I've been talking to some students or recent, recent alums that reach out to me. A lot of them who just want to think about living abroad. And, you know, Barcelona is, I've been here almost 11 years in Barcelona. And, and this is home. We love it here. And so a lot of students think about, Europe or going abroad. And the thing I tell them is that I think sometimes what happens is in our societies where we have, the path can be made for us in some ways, or you think you have to follow a certain path and that's the right thing to do. That's the right thing to do is great. If it also feels right and it's in line with what you want, you know, I got a UCLA friend of mine that he wanted to be a lawyer. He became a lawyer and now he has his own firm and, and that's what he wanted. I was jealous of folks who just knew what they wanted. But I, I came to accept it's okay that I don't have it so clear. I knew things that were driving me and motivating me. And I put more faith into that. Although half the jobs I took, I have no clue how I was going to do them or perform them. But I think UCLA prepares you for that. And I think, you know, other experiences have I had one after the other and wonderful mentors. And I call them your angels who come into your life and support you in one form or another play a role in, in, in kicking you in the butt when you need it, challenging you when you need it, giving you a helping hand when you need it. Don't get me wrong. There's been challenges along the way, but I, I do encourage some of the listeners here is it's okay to, to trust what you want and feel what you want. You may not know what the approach, how you're going to get there, but you know, there's something inside that says I'm doing what's right, but why am I not being fully fulfilled or satisfied? What's missing? And I, and I think that, with what's going on in our world right now with the, you know, for the listeners, you know, the pandemic that we're going through, people are probably rethinking where their careers are, what they want, or they've been impacted in a way that's thinking, no, now's the time I'm going to do this. You know, I did it when I was 28, when I did the big trip and then I made a big decision to leave a path that probably would have been a good one for me to follow, especially as a first gen student. And I never used the exit strategy to come back home. I dug in and, and, and I've been fortunate what I've been able to do. So I would encourage people to think about what feels right and balancing it out with what you want. Wow. Yeah. I just, I love and resonate with so much of what you just shared of like, like you said, not having that 
you know, not having that direct path, once again, like not to be intimidated by that and being able to just, like you said, feel out what are you passionate about? What if, you know, what are those sparks that like you light up or things that you can just go on and talk about, like leaning into those things and those opportunities will present themselves, you know? So. Yeah. And it's hard. It, it, it's, and it's, it's sometimes it's easier to do than you think. I think to make the leap is hard because everyone around you is, if you ask anyone around you what you should do, everyone has an opinion for what you should do. And they're usually telling you what they would do and putting that on you, right? You, you know, and you, we're fortunate to go to a great school and you, you see all these accelerated students around you and they're alum, like, heck, everyone knows what they want to do and how come I don't, you know? It's not about that. It's learning to be comfortable in your own skin, in your own reality, and really listening again to what's that purpose for you? What's that passion that you have? And how do you align that? And that alignment will be realigned time and time again. You know, you call it a detour, you call it a serendipity, whatever it is you're going to call it. But if you're open to that and, and you, you, you try to maintain good well-being of sense of who you are and what you're doing, sometimes you create the opportunities for yourself. You create your own narrative. Or sometimes because you're going in a direction and it's not clear, things will present themselves. And, you know, and how I got to where I'm at is there's people who are part of my life still who influence that. There's people who are just passing moments. And I, and, you know, I, you know, if you hear for this a year from now, maybe I'm at Adobe, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm doing something else. I, I don't know what it is, but I've learned to be more comfortable that that's okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, yeah. I, I love, love all of that. So you alluded a little bit to this, um, in your, in your, the previous question. Um, but I, one of the things that I was going to bring up before you brought it up naturally was the fact that, um, you are first generation and transfer student at UCLA. And so obviously, as you shared, these identities add unique challenges and opportunities to the college experience. Um, I'm just curious too, you know, you talked a little bit about how you went about, you know, finding support and community and, you know, finding those people on campus and that maybe became mentors and professors and things like that. Now, you know, given the world we're in, in this virtual world and school, of course, for our new entering Bruins looks, is going to look so different. What advice would you give to this entering class of Bruins, particularly those that are maybe from the transfer or first gen student population about seeking out community in, you know, this virtual setting now? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. I appreciate you, you calling out the transfers and the first gens. And I think what I can share is could be relevant to them, but it can also be relevant to other populations. The word community is really important. I think sometimes you all identify with your initial communities. They're the ones you identify right away. And then what you begin to realize is that, especially a place like UCLA, you can become part of much other communities. So you'll, you'll, your community will become other layers of communities. So you may feel a certain sense of comfort or safety or familiarity with certain communities, and you should embrace those because you got to have a foundation. But I think it's important to challenge yourself to go and find other communities that may be related to your work interest or your other social interests that you want to do where you want to go volunteer or you're just exploring interest. And that's going to expose you to different people that you normally wouldn't have, have met to be able to do that. And I think that's really important to do that because that's where you learn to see what else is out there. That's what UCLA did for me. UCLA opened the world to me within within Los Angeles. And then it, I met other communities. 
And then certain people I met introduced me to other people and to other people and to other people and to other people. And so it wasn't even a domino effect. You've made me think of it in a visual of multiple communities that I belong to and I can associate with from different reasons. Some of them I wasn't ready to until many years later, right? The expat community. I didn't know what that was. I 17 years as an expat, that's a part of my community now, right? And I can relate with people from other Americans who come from opposing political views or different backgrounds, but we connected because we're Americans living abroad. So my advice would be for, the, for the, our audience listening, challenge to leave and find, embrace more communities. And when you have to build those communities when they don't exist, and I think it's gonna be great because that enriches you, you enrich others, because I'm enriching others by helping them understand first gen Latinos, you know, not all American, you know, not all Americans are a certain profile when I'm abroad. I'm like an, I'm like an unofficial ambassador sometimes of, of what Americans can be. Right. And um, so I, that's would be my advice. Embrace the other communities that are out there, seek them out and be open to what they can provide you, but you have a lot to give. And I think that'd be my advice is expand your communities and, um, and be open to what's there. Even in the beginning, it's a little bit awkward or it's strange, you know, and that's what the working for UC is. That's what the Coro experience did for me. What traveling, I became in a community of travelers who are independent travelers. And, and, you know, I, you know, one of my best friends in life, I met him, you know, traveling the, the godmother to my daughter. I, I met her and her husband in Chile backpacking and, my first job in Germany was because someone I met in Italy and her husband owned a, jo- a company in, in Munich and that's where I was living. So all these people become part of that. And the beautiful thing is that you be- eventually begin to contribute to these, com- this richness, the community, but it all started really at UCLA to this day, UCLA has been vital. That's why I give back and that's why I serve on the board and find other ways to give back through, through what I've been able to accumulate accumulate through experience and or navigate Adobe's money towards, you know, scholarships for first gen students. So can you talk a little more about how COVID-19 has impacted your work at Adobe and perhaps kind of looking at the um, international education or technology landscape? I know many things, of course, are already happening and products are being used already right now, or, or they're in the works. But how do you see COVID-19 continuing to shift the landscape of technology in the classroom and how it's utilized? You know, it, it's, if we put aside the, the, the detrimental impacts COVID's having on people's lives, health, those have been impacted with illness issues, losing left ones, the economic impact that is still unfolding. We have to try to find where's their goodness been in here? Where's, where's, what's, what's been brought out to light that wasn't there before? And when I think of the education sector, I see that edu- education was always talking about being, it needed to get disrupted. The, the model of education needed to change. Some, you know, and with this is K-12 or higher ed. It, I'm talking education in general. It, some institutions were doing it. We're making it happen because leadership was driving it or in parts of Europe, it's the country that drives it. This now, it, 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 there's no going back. There is no, I, I don't, there's, it's the next normal phase. But I think some of the things that's happened here is it's definitely exposed the digital divide gap within education globally. 
there's no doubt there's a digital divide gap and we got to close that gap. And that gap is just as apparent in the United States as it can be in a country in a developing part of the world or whatever it is. There are gaps we need to close that because we need access and equity to all students to be able to do that, full stop. I mean, I think that's role for governments, the private sector, foundations, education, many stakeholders have to contribute to be able to do that because we have to think about our future uh, generations and how they're prepared to work and contribute to thriving economies and advancing society. So one big thing is the di that the digital divide is there. The other thing is that it's opened up new opportunities for what education can look like. You know, in many ways we wouldn't have thought we're now doing this virtually. Uh, companies are rethinking how they can save money on cost or engage employees another way or engage customers, not just to make a better bottom line. Yeah, that's one thing that needs it. That they, that, that's not just the only thing, but other ways how they can be more impactful. So I think the same thing with education. Hybrid learning is going to become much more important. It's not this strange thing that only some schools do. The role of parents in teaching and education will become more important. Parents have had a more close-up view of what's happening and what needs to happen and what their role is and how they can support that and their variety of ways they can influence that. The way where virtual learning is going to be happening and who, how do we support, how do we enable and empower teachers? You know, we can't fault the teachers. They, were, they weren't prepared for what's happening. Curriculums weren't made for that. They weren't empowered how to use that. They were thrown into that in many ways as the, as the learners were as to the families were. So what's the role of how we got to better equip educators across all the education sector to be able to do that? And we got to support to be able to do that. I think that that's happening as well. I think that in terms of, you know, in terms of what we're doing at Adobe, you know, we, we want to make things available anywhere, anytime to be able to use at home or at school across devices to be able to do that and make it as equitable and accessible as possible. And we've made big strides to be able to do that. And I think that we, we, want, to we, we want to be part of the solution that's helping advance where education is going and where it needs to go. And I think this is where we, we can hopefully contribute to the conversation, not just because of what we provide in terms of a software, but what we can bring in in all of our resources and our experiences with our all our education customers or non-education customers to help move this thing forward. So I think this has been the good thing with education, but we got to deal with the gap. We got to make sure that the vulnerable students are being taken care of. We have to make sure that we're helping school leaders and government leaders and policymakers be informed about what's the way forward because, you know, it's not easy being a leader at this time and We've never lived something like this, what he or she's going through. So, but I think these are great opportunities and I do hope we don't go back to business as usual in education. I think we really have to advance forward to be able to do that. And I do think the last thing is that the students, I think have been forever impacted. Um, I have an eight and a 10 year old at home. They've been impacted, but I think more about the height, the people who are in high school, the college students, the ones who are just entering university or further or higher education or further education they've been impacted tremendously and how do we enable and prepare them for their future to what's going on so these are some of the longer big things that we need to be thinking and addressing and i think once we we're in this next normal phase where there can be some sense of new normalcy we also have to take the time to planning for the future and where this needs to go so i'm, I'm excited about some of the stuff i've heard the chancellor talk about recently at a recent board meeting where they're going and driving forward 
And I think now it's not just talking about, oh, education needs to change. It's happening now. Let's find solutions to build something sustainable because education is vital and we need to make sure it's sustainable, it's impactful, it's serving everyone in, in the way it should to be able to do that. And so we need a lot of people at the, at the table who are willing to roll up their sleeves and work and contribute to the solution and not look for the opportunity, but look to see how we can really create some impact. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, like you said, I, I, the next normal, that's really what we are having to focus on. And just, I think even from everything you shared with some of the things coming out of this, it's, it's going to be an all hands on deck, you know, uh, thing for all of us. Like you said, you, you know, so many people you mentioned are partners that can be involved in, in, in completely changing the landscape of tech of education. And like you said, disrupting it. Um, and I agree. I, I hope that we don't go back to business as usual too. I don't think at this point, I'd like to think we probably can't, um, you know, and that's hopefully for the better that we can, like you said, really scale and look at the ways that, you know, who was this not serving before and how can we change that and better it for everyone? And I would add to that, you know, and, and it's not just, I mean, education, one of those things where everyone has an opinion on it. And I'm, I'm just trying to step back on seeing it in a more as objective way, but you know, we're for, it doesn't matter what, where you're if your education is stop at high school, we'll go on to a community college in Europe. There's a variety of other layers of colleges or where you can go on to, you know, post-secondary education, but, and it's, it's not just about enabling and equipping students for their futures. That's, there's some core hard skills and soft skills to be able to do that. It's also getting a well-rounded education about critical thinking and whether you're studying, I was a Latin American studies major, you know, and there's things that my education at UCLA provided me that have been fundamental to who I am. And then I've developed other, these other soft skills, these other things that I need. So it's, it's like, it's like trying to develop a lifelong toolkit of knowledge and abilities, which I think was what, you know, we try to do a lot in the association with the work that you're leading, which is fantastic, you know, and for those listeners, you got to take advantage, you, you know, listen, see what's what we're doing at the alumni association with amazing staff and on terms of career space. And I think we're trying to, that's important is that it's not just about, oh, you're preparing me to get a job, not to be honest, what's a job today mean? You know, what's, it's going to look differently. I think students are going to be navigating their own, their future careers. And what's going on. So I think it's it's a it's a combination of of getting a well-rounded education, you know, and like we've gone at UCLA or any other whatever institution you can be at around the globe, enabling and empowering yourself and constantly nourishing that with tools and knowledge and resources that you can go back to your institution for that. But more important, just as importantly as an alum, to go back and give to your institution. Because the institution alone can't do it on their, they, they shouldn't be able, they shouldn't, they can't do it on their own. They need the, the resources of our al alums as myself and others and to give back to our human capital and experience and what we can give combined. And I think that's what we do very well on, that's the thing, I'm, the stuff I'm proud of, the work we've done with the association. So you kind of, um, you know, talked a little bit about this as you were sharing your kind of career trajectory, but, um, you know, having an international career comes with so many layers of navigating new cultures and norms, languages, expectations, as you also, I'm sure, have tried to, you know, do, do your job to the best of your ability. For you as someone who's lived and worked in so many different places around the world, what have you learned about you know, how to immerse yourself in a new culture and society. And especially I asked this, you know, 
kind of in the lens of other Bruins out there who may want, like you said earlier, an international career or work in global relations or international relations, or just looking at picking an industry and saying, I want to do that abroad, like, you know, advice for them as they want to, you know, explore a global career. Yeah, no, that's great. For any students listening, go study abroad. Step one, go study abroad. For, for the alums that maybe are thinking about uh, international career or just having a lifestyle abroad, you, there's a lot of lifestyle, I call them lifestyle expats, who just want to have an experience, a, a year or two abroad with their young children to be able to do that. I think the, the first thing is, it's probably, it's much easier than you think it is. That's number one. It's probably much easier. There's tons of resources out there to help you navigate where this is, where this is going. The other thing too, for alums, I get contacted frequently by, I'd say younger alumni, you know, who, who reach out and are thinking about graduate school abroad is a great option, doing your graduate school in an overseas country, whichever the degree is a nice way to do it. It's more of a, could be even more of a, of a more secure way of doing it because you've got the visa work, you're going to study, you build a network and you, that's one way to do it. Um, I was the grassroots one that just left and did it and kind of figured it out along the way. But I think the big thing to immerse, the way you can be able to do that is go, you know, before you, there's one thing is there's like a dream. Oh, I want to go live abroad. It's so great. But what's your purpose for doing it? Is it more just from a life experience point of view? Is it something much, is it something much more about careers? Is it really about, it feels right, why, you know, what feels for you and what felt right for me could look differently for different people. Some people go abroad because they're, if you want to excel in your corporate career, you're going to go abroad. They're going to send you abroad. And that's the only way you can advance. I've, I've seen that through many um, students I've worked with over the years. So I think you got to find out why you want to go abroad. And then you can take steps with it. Maybe you try going on a longer vacation for two weeks. Maybe you take a sabbatical. Maybe you're just going to go travel for an extended period of time like I did and discover what's out there. Develop the language skills. Those are critical to have the language skills. Um, those are just quite important to be able to do that. And I think the other thing is too, is once you land where you want to go, depending how you get here, it goes back to what I said about building communities. I cannot live alone in the American expat community, you know, and there's multiple layers to that one living abroad. I connect with my wife's Italian community, with our children's school community. I connect to, um, you know, our local church community that we belong to. So there's multiple layers that I have. And I built community here for myself that some of it shared with my family. Some of it's just my community to be able to do that. Bruins abroad as well as another community. So I think if you're going to do this and you're not sure how, reach out to a Bruin who lives abroad. That's a first good first step. And then find ways to slowly experience what's going to be your way to get here. And I, you know, I don't want to go into too much detail because this really varies on, on this person's profile, but I'm seeing a much more mobility, especially of U.S. residents or American, U.S. citizens or residents that live, live in the U.S. that want to come to, um, I mean, Barcelona is a big destination, but that want to come to Europe and, and they don't think they can do that. And you can do it. And I think it's just a matter of knowing what your options are. And how do you know what you don't know? You got to go tap into people who've done it and ask them how they've done it. And that's a good step. And then once you're here, you're not in the U.S. anymore. 
So be accept the reality here. Accept how things are here. You can't compare. I don't compare my life here to what it was like in the States. I accept the reality for what it's here, and this is what I embrace. But I still have, but I, the last thing is I maintain strong roots in the U.S. I maintain strong roots in Colombia, where I still have family, my Italian roots with my wife and her family. Community, it's important to know you've you got to have strong roots, and your roots can be extend globally. So good roots, so you know where you come from, build your communities and be clear about why you're here and then be open to those detours that show up the way. And you'll probably end up finding your way abroad somewhere, you know, that will work out, but it is a great experience. Even if you just do it for a year or two, or for me, it's indefinite. People are you going back? I don't think I'm going back. You know, I'll probably maybe send my kids back for a year, high school, whatever. I'll go back, but home for me is here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's such, such great advice. And I, I think that's such a great point. Even the first one you said about like figuring out what it is that you want to gain from this experience and kind of that, like, why, why do you want to go abroad or what? I think sometimes it's like people know they want to, but figuring out that why, like do the reflection and take time to kind of figure out what, what you can get from that experience. Um, and I think, like you said, it's, it's good to hear it's easy that it's easier than it seems. Cause I think that is so much of, you know, what I've even heard from students that I've worked with or even alumni of like, that's, it's that big unknown. So it feels really daunting. of like, oh gosh, like I have to, you know, uproot my whole life. Like there's just, you know, and I think that that just starts to intimidate and, and scare people. But I think it's good to hear from someone, right. Who's done it and has been there a long time and um, been so many different places that it's, it's, there are resources, like you said, and people can help you get there. And you know, the, the one thing just to add, you made me think about something is that unknown, that's part of the draw, right? I mean, how to our listeners, you know, whether you're a multi-generation Bruin or first-generation Bruin, it was your experience. UCLA was a lot of an unknown. You kind of, you had a good idea what you were getting, what you're expecting, right? I challenge any Bruin to say is how you started, did it end the way you thought when it started? Probably not. So when you're going abroad, similar experience, right? You, you, you've done good groundwork. You've done some due diligence. You've been smart. You got an idea. And then once you land here, the map is not the territory. This is one of the a phrase I learned in my Coro days. The map is not the territory. So what does that mean, right? So you got to be open to that. And then if you're willing to do this and it's your choice, I have perspective as well. I'm an immigrant. I mean, you may call me an expat, but I'm still an immigrant here by choice. Many immigrants, we don't, socioeconomic, political situations don't allow you to have the choice. You got to leave because we're, better lives, whatever it is, variety of reasons. So there's immigrants for a number of reasons. But if you're going to do this, go for it. You can always go back to where you're coming from and probably easily tap into your network where you left off. Oh, but my career, it's going to be broken. And what's the storyline? Oh, forget that now. That's, we should stop thinking about, I got my life, you know, my, I should do this and this. And no one's going to hire me because I spent six months. You know, people who don't get that story, you don't want to work for them. Okay, guys? You want someone to embrace that you lived abroad, you did something, and for the students, you know, to be able to do that, no. Someone who doesn't like the story, no, you know? Yep. Yep. I love that. No, I, I, yeah, your advice is, is so great. And also just the, the, your, I think, yeah, like your reality checks with them. It's, it's great. I love it. 
So my final question for you is the question we wrap our, all of our interviews with is since leaving UCLA, um, how has your career and life experiences shaped how you define success? And this may be the opportunity for you to share that negative advice that you referenced earlier. Wow. How to define success. That's a challenging one I've always had. I have to, do have to say that when I first moved abroad, I was still very much influenced by what Amer by what the U.S. was telling me success was. You know, a certain achieving certain titles or could be economic status or, you know, I don't know. And I just, you know, I I was starting to do that, and then I came here to Europe, and then I, there was just a different reality for me that just resonated with me. Success for me has constantly been evolving. And I think the best success I have now is that I've gotten comfortable to define what success means for me and not by what others think it should be or what I see others doing. You know what I mean? So I've learned to, and I'm still, I still struggle with this. I just even fairly recently. So I think at the moment success for me is that I've got, a, I'm blessed with a loving family. Um, they're just awesome, you know, and and that I've been blessed with amazing relationships that I think have weathered time and distance and that I still have that are just invaluable to me. Um, and I think the other success is that somehow I can still pay the bills. We, my wife and I can still pay the bills and we can still have some type of, of, of life. And, and I think it's success, I think, is, is, is just is much more simpler in how we see it. And I, and, I, and I still struggle with it sometimes. I don't know if I'm successful or not, but I, I've been, at least I'm, I'm successful in at least trying to do what I've wanted to do in, in going for it. So um, I think success becomes much more, not personal, but it becomes much more intimate with regarding who and what's going on in your life to be able to do that. And you can still, you can still do huge things and become a big name if you want, but everyone's always gonna tell you what success should look like for you. And I think you got to define what it means for you. And the last thing is the last piece of advice, the advice I would give is, is a model. Maybe I'm putting it out here. Maybe this is my future business thing. I, I believe strongly in careers and it's the four D's. And this is something I, I'm not saying it's mine, but I, I don't know where it came, it came up and may have existed or not. So I'm not stealing it. It's, it's called the four D's. So when you're thinking about what you want to do for your careers and going forward or where your next move is, there's the four D's. Number one, you got to discover what it is that you want. So you, you don't know what it is. So you got to be out there and discovering like an explorer. You don't, it's not defined, but you're going to discover what's out there. Number like a doctor. I want to be a doctor. What type of doctor? A pediatrician, OBGYN, a psychiatrist, a, an oncologist. I don't know. You got to go discover what that means. And what do I want to work in? In a hospital? Do I want to be a researcher? Do I want to work for an NGO? You know, don't have my own, I don't know. You got to go discover. And that means talking and, you know, from good Bruins, go talk to fellow Bruins, right? Then you got to define what you're going to do. Once you've discovered enough, you slowly begin to define or have a scope of where, what really interests you. If I'm using the doctor analogy again, oh, I really like to be a pediatrician. I don't want to be a researcher. I don't want to work for a, a big HMO. I probably, maybe I want to go work in a developing country for a, or work for the Gates Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I don't know. So you begin to define what it is that you want. And when you begin to define it, 
then you got to design it. And the design is how am I going to get there? What's my roadmap to get there? And you got to design that. And so that's with, with intent that you're defining that. Leave room for this, for the detours, go please. And then you got to deliver it or the, the delivery, the delivery from easy execution. You got to go put it out there. So in some cases, if you're thinking of the discovery phase, you may ask a fellow Bruin, yeah, I'm just thinking about the medicine field. I don't know what I want to do. How did you get to where you want? Help me understand. But I'm not asking you for anything. I just want information. On the design phase, the design phase, now you're seeking out doctors who are pediatricians working in areas where you want. Now you're being very intent on your question. Your line of questioning is much different with them. And when they're going to ask you, how can I help you? Now you can answer that question. And the discovery phase when goes, how can I help you? You probably can't answer that. And you're not looking for that right now. So you discover, you define it, you design it, and then you deliver it. And then you leave room for iteration because iter- it's always going to be iterated. I know. I'm a living example of iteration. So, yeah. Wow, I love that. I love the, I love the 40s. All right, well, we're putting John's name next to that. Dang, that's, we'll build something out together. You know, I, yeah, I, there's I an love entrepreneurial that. spirit of me living, you know, waking up again, you know, talking about. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a, such a great way of looking at it. And it's so true when you even look at, like I've been in career development now for majority of my career and like most of the programs and opportunities that we provide are all can all fit in one of those four categories in helping students or early alumni or even alumni that are farther out be able to, you know, kind of rethink their career or where are you at and how are you being able to shape it and, um, and, and being able to own your career and feel like you're in charge of those decisions too. You, you make a great point. When you do that, the reason I, I love the four Ds and, and people, when I talk to people about it who seek me out, they like it is because it's number one, it's tangible. You own it, so you have to do the work. And there's steps. Instead of being out there, I don't know what I'm going to do, and, I, and a month passes, three months passes, six months pass, and you feel like you're stuck. The four Ds give you work to do. And you've got to write it out, right? And you do it. And then you can go back and revisit it. So you're not, no one's going to hold you accountable to it, really, unless yourself. And, and so it gives you tangible steps to do. And so there's, you can track your progress. And it's good to have progress that you can measure. And I think that's why the four Ds help you. But you own it. And then you know that you can adjust it or play with it as you want. And, you know, in your 20s or your 30s or your 40s or, and beyond, you may be doing this not just from a career point of view. You may be doing it from a personal life point of view. Your 40s can apply to different aspects of our life, not just the, the, the career one, you know. Totally. And I think, yeah, and I think your big point with it too is the leaving room for iteration and the detours because those are inevitable and allowing yourself to be flexible and open to when, when those arise, you know, like don't be scared of them. And just like you said, feel out what, what feels right. Um, and things will, things will align themselves at least. That's what I like to believe. Yeah. And then the forties also give you some type of framework or filter. So if something comes your way, like, no, this doesn't fit into my plan and it sounds great. It's attractive. And, um, but no, it's, it's, it's not there versus oh, shine, you know, shiny new object. And I'm just going to jump into that. And, you know, and I've done that before in the past to jump on a shiny new object and you realize, well, that wasn't the right. No. So you got to be able to build up this kind of permeable filter with the four D's. So you know that, if something does show up that you weren't appearing, 
that can be great. Whether it's work, you know, your next, your life partner, or who knows, or your business partner, or you don't know. And I think that's what the nice thing is. Um, it's fa- yeah, it's fabulous. I I was I literally was writing it down as you were saying it. <laughs> um, well, John, thank you so much for our conversation today. I honestly, I, I loved every bit of it. And um, I think you, your trajectory is amazing. And, you know, I know you said um, in your last response, you're not sure if people would find you successful. I can tell you right now, like, I definitely think you're successful and many of our listeners will feel the same way and be inspired by your stories um, and and the advice and just genuine, I think, um, you know, insight you have to share with our Bruin community. So thank you so much for our conversation today. And also I want to thank you um, even more so, especially now for um, being a member of our alumni association board and for everything that you do for this next generation of Bruins and moving the needle forward um, in our work to make it a better place for everyone. So thank you for everything you do outside of you know, normal day job and your life and everything with your family to be able to give back and, you know, serve um, more Bruins. So we, we're so appreciative um, and we're lucky to have alumni like you. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to, to be interviewed and share. Um, I'd like to thank Christian, who you guys don't see as part of the production, part of the alumni team who's helping with this. Um, it's a collaborative effort moving forward. I learned that through my family. I learned that through UCLA and well and beyond, and this is how we move things forward. So thank you for all the work that you're doing. Um, hopefully look forward to speaking to some of the listeners in the future, reach out and being able to do that. And thank you again for the opportunity to, to share. And it's, it's also been good for me to hear and, and think about this. I want to reflect on this conversation as well. Um, and that's part of the process that we, we do as, as, we, as we move forward. So thank you and, and best wishes to everyone going forward. You've been listening to Bruin Success. Our guest this week was John Arboleta of Adobe. You can find more information on John in the description of the episode. Follow Alumni Career Engagement on Instagram and Facebook to keep up with Bruin Success. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe to it, tell a friend, or share your support on social media. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time when we're back with Araceli Almazan of Alvarez, Glassman, and Pullman. This podcast was made possible by UCLA alumni.